So you sort of take it for granted that you've heard all of this before, right? I, I, I know that story. He's hearing it for the first time, mind blown, right? Like, Jesus dies, and then he comes back to life. It's a crazy story if you think about it, right? So here's the thing. Um, if you come to church regularly every week, you hear, you hear the word of God. And so I would say, like, is, is anything changing in your life? I've asked you this before. And the, the deficit between hearing God's word and, and it actually making, like, impact in us is a problem. And um, maybe you know what it means to, like, be at a spiritual plateau. I mean, like, you guys know what a plateau is. I, don't, I, I know uh, public school has been iffy lately, but I think you guys are all best at right? So plateau, right? You get, you, you're, you're ascending and then you just get to, like, a point where, like, nothing is changing in you. You, you come and you hear the same things and it's like old news. Yeah, we've been talking about this for 2,000 years, but it's like not actually doing anything inside of you. And if you actually invert the plateau, it becomes a valley that you're just kind of sitting in. And the, the, the problem with the thing is, it's not the problem with the word, right? The, the, the issue is not that the word is not impactful enough. It's that the, the problem of our heart not actually applying the words that we hear, um, so I, I want to start this morning, um, forgive me if my slides are off because um, I had to change them all right before the sermon. So if they're off, just deal, okay? So you, you know this, that um, Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, the last thing he tells the disciples to do is the marching orders, why, why he's done all of this. Go, therefore, and make disciples, okay? We know this, yeah? Okay, so, so we all get that. And he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then he qualifies what a disciple is. Okay, that's the rest of the explanation there. So when you say, well, a disciple is somebody that comes to church or somebody that knows who Jesus is. And I say, no, just being baptized is not enough. Just hearing the word is not enough. If you have any one aspect of this, Jesus says it's actually the obedience to the things that you're hearing that qualifies you as a disciple. Okay, the obedience to the things that you're hearing, actually applying what, you, what you're hearing to your, to your heart, to your life, is what makes you a disciple. And um, James in the New Testament later says, uh, in uh, chapter 1, 22 says, but um, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Walter, if you click on that second slide, um, that'll put the slides up for them. So he says, if, if you are not a doer, let me put the inverse of this up for you. If you're not a doer of the word and a hearer only, you have deceived yourself. What have you deceived yourself into? Well, you've deceived yourself that hearing is enough. That, that you have come and you hear, and I'm a disciple, but I'm at this like spiritual plateau. It's not changing anything. Like there's no place in my life where I can see growth. And, um, and, and even though God has challenged me in the same thing over and over, and I really should grow in this thing, I don't. And because, because it's good enough to hear. And James says, if, you're, if you hear and you don't do, you're deceived. And he says, it's, it's like somebody looking at the mirror and then forgetting what they look like when they walk away. So that's what God's word does. It, it holds the, the mirror of you up to you. And you go, I'm not as good as I thought I was. And you ought to do something about that. And he says, if you see it and then you walk away, but don't do something about it, you're deceived. Okay. So with that idea this morning, I, I need to hammer down for us what discipleship is. Because the Great Commission calls us to do something that, that includes obedience. It doesn't just say go willy-nilly and spread the word about, and that's good enough. He says teach them to, to get to the point of actually doing the stuff that I've taught you to do, okay? So that's, that's the intended goal of this. And so um, we need to, 
to see how it's insufficient to have even parts of the Word of God applied. So even if you have the truth and you apply that truth, but if you don't have all the truth or you're not applying all the truth, then you're still falling short of the goal. And so all of this is to say this, two things. One is the structure of the church is intended for you and I to grow one another, that we, that we build each other up in, um, in, in growth, in discipleship, and that's what it is to increase obedience. So that as you come, this is one aspect of discipleship. Me declaring the word over you and you hearing it, that's, that's one thing. But then there's also um, gathering together and encouraging one another and then gathering in homes and then prayer. And all of these things are meant to disciple you. There's not just one way that discipleship happens. So, but it's all gathered around the central authority of God's word. I, I'm not here to call you to do my bidding or my opinion about what's good. I'm here to say, here's what God's word says, and then we collectively agree to like strive towards this standard, okay? So let me pray for us, and then we'll get to Acts chapter 18 this morning, and uh, we'll be in uh, verse 24 through the end, which is 28. So Father, we ask this morning that you would help us um, in our time in your word. Um, if we uh, are in that place this morning where it's just kind of that lull, that spiritual lull, we're not growing we're not finding new obedience in our heart. We're not, we're not really striving after you. We're not really being disciples. Father, I ask that you would use this um, word to spur us on this morning, that you would encourage us to build um, not just one another up in the faith, but build ourselves up in the opportunities that you present to us. Thank you that you have gifted the church with your spirit, with your word, and one another to do this. As we set our mind on you this morning, um, help us to fully focus in on what the truth says, what it calls us to, and help us um, with our weaknesses, which is bringing our natural stuff to the table. So give us um, spiritual eyes and spiritual ears and hearts that um, can receive what you would speak. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just to uh, catch you up on the context of, of what's happened here, um, Paul has concluded the second missionary journey, and he kind of unceremoniously has started the third missionary journey. And we kind of saw like on his way out, um, there's actually a really long journey, and it kind of felt like there was just this travel itinerary. He goes here, here, here. Oh yeah, he got a haircut, and then he goes to uh, Jerusalem, and he sees the church there, and he sets off again. And so that's uh, where we were at in chapter 18, but he's left some things behind. And those things being like um, his, his uh, missionary helpers along the way, and he, this couple that he's met, Priscilla and Aquila, and he's left the place that he actually dearly wanted to go, which is Ephesus. And so um, we see him laying some groundwork for provision for other people. God gave Paul provision, and he gladly and um, is intended to, to sacrifice these things for the good of uh, the church and for the good of the gospel. And so that's where we kind of left him, that he had, he had left um, Priscilla and Aquila behind in Ephesus. And so um, we pick up the story now as Luke is going to, he, he does this a lot. He'll, he'll kind of conclude like a narrative and then he'll be like, but meanwhile, back at the ranch kind of thing. So that's what's happening. While Paul is set off on um, the third missionary journey, um, we kind of turn our attention back to Ephesus where Paul has left some of the things that are dear to him, okay? So that's where we're at, and it starts, now a Jew named Apollos, who was a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, um, competent in the scriptures. Well, I'll read verse 25 too, and then we'll get to, back to that. So it says, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So a couple things real quick. Notice that what is, what is not said about Apollos in this, in this minute is that he's a brother. 
It just says a certain man and a Jew. And so he's, he's qualified him, but then he's going to go on to describe some, some details about Apollos that would lead us to believe that he um, is just as good as, as Paul. Like he, he's, he's one of the flock. He's one of the crew. And um, he's a gifted guy. He's from Alexandria, which is um, considered, it's the, it's the second biggest city uh, only to Rome itself in, in terms of just grandeur and population, which is in Egypt. Uh, it was uh, one of the uh, wonders of the world. So he's like from a, a metropolis and he's going about and he's um, got some natural disposition that makes him a likable guy, an influential guy. And so we, we kind of turn our attention to him because he's having uh, influence in Ephesus where Paul had just left. So we, we learned two things about Apollos in this uh, first thing. We learned something about his character and about his skill, okay? So character and skill, not quite the same thing. Like character is kind of like who you are, your personality a little bit, and skill are things that you maybe have like a natural inclination for, but they can be developed, okay? And so um, uh, at first it introduces him, and it says he's an eloquent man. That means that he, he was able to express himself verbally and, and convincingly. It wasn't just that he had a big vocabulary. He had a big vocabulary, and it was influential. Like, that, that's what's behind the words there. And it says that he was competent in the Scripture. That means that uh, the word there is literally he was taught. He's been formally trained in the Scripture, something like Paul himself had been. So he, he didn't advance to maybe the level of a Pharisee or something like that, but he's had some, some formal training in the Scriptures. And so here's um, where you need to see there's, there's unity here, but it's not, it's not totally there. So he, the, the Word of God is not disjointed in such a way so that familiarity with the Old Testament shouldn't lead you to what happens in the New Testament. In fact, you you should kind of conclude, well, this is where everything's leading up to, and that's exactly what he's done. So, so Jesus confirms a couple, uh, a couple places that this is the case when he says um, to, to the Pharisees, this is in John chapter 5, he says, you guys, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So, so the, the people that have, have the Old Testament here, that's the word that he's been instructed in. So he says, you search it because you think in them they have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me. This is Jesus saying, look, if you, if you were reading the Old Testament correctly, they're all bearing witness to who I am. And he says, but you're not really doing that. He says, if you believed Moses, this is later in verse 46, if you believed Moses, which is what they would purport to do, like everything Moses said, which is the first five books of the, the Bible, uh, everything that he said, we, we believe, we trust that to be true. Well, Moses had said, after me will come another prophet, and to him you shall listen. And, and so he said, if you believed Moses, you should believe in me because he wrote of me. So he's saying, if you're reading the scripture right, then you would see that I'm the fulfillment of the scripture. Okay, so don't get the idea that the Old Testament and the New Testament are so disconnected or the gospel is so disconnected from the Old Testament that it shouldn't be the natural conclusion. In, um, in Luke, as he's telling the story, post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, he's, um, Jesus is walking with some disciples and uh, he's, he's training them, and uh, it says that he opened their minds to understand all the scriptures and how everything that was written about him needed to be fulfilled. And then he does the same thing for all of the apostles before he ascends to heaven. In Luke 24, it says this, and beginning with Moses, that's the beginning, okay? That's Genesis, and all the prophets, that's the rest of the Old Testament, okay? There's nothing left. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so just read the Old Testament, he explained to them what was written in all the scriptures about himself. So just hear what Luke's saying. Jesus opened their minds to see the Old Testament was always all about him, okay? And then later in verse 45, it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So here's the connection I need you to make. Being instructed in the scriptures is good 
That's exactly who Apollos is. He's, he's familiar. He understands how these things work together. And he's also put it together to point towards a Messiah. But he doesn't have all the information yet. But what happened was people disconnected the eventuality of that and they had kind of stopped at the Old Testament. So they would be like hearing new information just like the guy in that skit at the beginning. It's like, what? You're kidding me? That couldn't possibly be the case because we're expecting the Messiah to be this conquering king, so on and so forth. So Jesus makes the relationship clear. If the, if the authority is God's word, which it is, which is scripture, right? If the authority is God's word, then we hold fast to that, then we must conclude with what it concludes, which is Jesus is the purpose of all of it, okay? So um, real quick, I want to I um, bring your, I don't have this slide, but in 2 Timothy, which brings us this familiar scripture, which is all scriptures breathed out by God, useful for teaching, reproof, correction, so on and so forth, that you might be mature, brought to maturity. That's the purpose of Scripture. But just before that, starting in verse 14, it says, he's talking to Timothy, and he says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you had been acquainted, acquainted with the sacred writings. So, so what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy there is really saying the same thing about Apollos. This is who Paul said. He was acquainted with the writings. And what Paul is saying is if, if you know that, that's the foundation. You build off of that. At this point, there's no New Testament to draw from. So we see Apollos who's familiar, who's got the foundation, and eventually that foundation needs to be built up into the, the fullness, into where it should go, to the conclusion. So the way of God that he's familiar with can refer to a few different things. So that would be, yes, verse 25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. That's an important phrase if you want to underline that because Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not just the idea of a place to go through. It's not just a hallway. It is like a way of doing things, a, a, a process, a procedure of being, a way to go through things. And then when you see in the beginning of Acts where the church begins to be persecuted, they're called followers of the way. So the way of God happens to be the way of God's operation in the world. And then those who follow the way of God are those who follow the way that God tells us that we ought to proceed through the world, okay? And so Apollos, who's familiar with the way of the Lord. So this could kind of refer to several different aspects of that idea, but it says that he's fervent in spirit. This, uh, it's a very colorful um, phrase here that we kind of miss. Um, it says like he's, he's boiling over, okay? He's, he's got enthusiasm for days. This is a natural disposition. Notice that spirit um, is not, it's not capitalized and there's no definitive article. It is not the spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit, Okay? There's no adjective there either describing Holy Spirit where you would normally see it. So he's, he's boiling over. That's his, something, again, of his character. He's, he's got this enthusiastic way about him. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord. He understands how the scripture all fits together and points to Christ. And so he's, he's, he come and he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Now, that's an important idea. So he connected the dots enough to be able to accurately describe that a Messiah was come. Okay? And so that's exactly what he's doing. But then we, we hit this first um, real speed bump, and it says this, though he knew only the way, or he, he knew only the baptism of John. That John there is, is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. So um, this is important here. So a, a very influential kind of character guy, a likable guy, an effervescent spiritual uh, spirit kind of guy, uh, enthusiastic, compelling, convincing, right? All of these things lead to a potential like collision. 
Because somebody that has limited knowledge, but all those abilities can carry things in the wrong direction quickly, right? And so you're, this is actually building to like a climax here. Like what's going to happen with this guy who only knows the baptism of John? He's, he's got some ability to influence things. In the, in, in the world, that's um, enough, unfortunately. Too often, that, that's enough. We, we like people that are convincing, they're effervescent, they've got a way about them. They're, they're, and this is exactly why cult leaders are cult leaders, right? They're very charismatic. They're very compelling. People like to follow them, but they're limited in their knowledge of the truth, right? And so people just kind of join up with them because they like them. And, and, and it gets minimized too often about the substance of what somebody says versus what their character appears to be as they present it. So too often we say, oh, that person's so gifted. God has called them to be in a teaching ministry. But their truth presentation is not, not accurate. And so we tend to dismiss and kind of say, well, it's not that big of a deal. Or their departure from, you know, this certain aspect of it isn't that, that big of a deal. And so we kind of fudge our way around the problem of needing to be accurate because God's word is not something that we just say, okay, we'll agree to disagree about that part of it. Okay? So, um, In 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about um, Apollos and what has happened because of the nature of his spirit. And he's not faulting Apollos. So this is somewhere down the road from the moment we find Apollos here in Acts. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, he's addressing the Corinthians. And he says, I mean, what I mean is that each each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas, that's Peter. And he says, or I follow Christ. So then he asks, is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized into the, into the name of Paul? So he, he's pointing out the fact that in the Corinthian church, people weren't saying, I follow God. I follow the word of God. They're, say, they're looking at a person and saying, I follow that guy. They had a favorite like dude that they followed. That some follow Paul, some follow Paul. Somebody like Peter more. And so they say, well, I follow Cephas, okay? And so the problem is he's saying, none of you are... Um, baptized into Christ. We didn't die for you. So he's pointing out the problem with, with this mentality. And then, I know that's too small for you to read, so let me unpack it for you, okay? So this is later in 1 Corinthians, okay? Later in 1 Corinthians, he says, uh, he's addressing the Corinthians. He says, I wanted to talk to you as mature people, as spiritual people, but I couldn't do it because you're too worldly. You're too in the flesh, and what makes them, what's the identifying feature of, of being fleshly or worldly? Well, he says, the thing is, you have this, um, this following uh, about following a certain person. So there in verse 3, he says, you're still of the flesh, for while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh when you're behaving in a human way? One says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not merely being human? He says, that's a worldly way of thinking. To, to be fleshly or worldly, to be not spiritual, to be immature is to think more about the person that's telling you that than the truth that you're supposed to be hearing, okay? That's the identifying feature of being immature. You're concerned with the person more than the truth that you should be adhering to. And so the problem there is elevating somebody to a position they don't have. They're not the authority. I'm not the authority, Right? It has to do with presenting the authority and you following that. And so um, this has been uh, created factions within the, uh, the Corinthian church. And then he goes on to just say, look, what is Paulus? What is Paul? They're only servants through whom you believed. We're just up here presenting the truth. He says, look, I, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. I'm nothing. Paulus is nothing. Paul is nothing. We're just servants, and God ultimately gives the growth. So focus in on 
not the, the talents or the qualifications of the person that's speaking. That's too often what we focus on. We like the style, the substance, we'll, we'll take it or leave it. But we, can't, we, we feel like we can't do without the style, and that's a problem. Like, they shouldn't be um, mutually exclusive. And um, Spurgeon has a great quote about um, how there should never be a pastor that makes the Bible boring, like God forbid, that somebody should get up and present the scripture in a way that makes you feel like it's dull, okay? So hopefully I don't do that. I do occasionally see a few of you nod off, and I might just start clapping like that and wake you up, okay? So, but by fleshly or worldly standards, um, just character is enough, but it, it's not enough. Accuracy and, and training in the truth is um, the standard. And so it says here that he only knew um, John's baptism. Now, we've got to do a, a little bit of inferring here on what that means. So um, at, the, at the very most, what Apollos is familiar with is the fact that John had declared this thing. Hey, he, he's the forerunner of Christ. He said, prepare the way, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. And that was his whole ministry. He went out in the wilderness. He called people to repentance. And we're going to go more into that next week because it gets into the different baptisms, baptism of John, baptism of the Holy Spirit. So just file this away for today. So he only knew the ministry of John, which prepared the way for Christ. And that was the extent to the, that he knew. It stopped there. And so whether that means that he knew that Jesus actually arrived, because at, at one point, Jesus, um, after being tempted, goes out, uh, or no, before he's tempted, he, he goes and he's baptized by John. And so maybe he knows that the Messiah is on the scene because John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so for a guy like Apollos to have that information, get the whole story here, right? He's familiar with the scriptures. He understands the way of God that he's bringing about a Messiah, that all of the Old Testament stuff that he knows, it's pointing to Christ. And then John says, he's here, the Christ is here. And so Apollos takes off out of Jerusalem with that knowledge and he's ready to go. The Messiah's come. This is the kind of message that he's spreading, or at least he's saying, hey, prepare the way because the Messiah is near. So whatever, whatever is actually meant by he only knew the baptism of John, it means something limiting to the fact that he's not gotten to the place that the gospel is, is being fully presented, okay? And so just, just file this away, that that's the limitation, and um, the, the, the majority of this message is an alignment then with the truth of Jesus, right? Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's here to, to bring salvation. And um, at least he knows that he's the sacrifice for sin, maybe. But then you get to that point, like in the skit, where he goes, but then he died. And you're like, what? He died? Who killed Jesus? Why would they kill the Messiah? That's impossible, right? But then he rose again. And they're like, you're kidding me, right? So this would all be new information to Apollos. He only knows up to the point of John's baptism. So it says, he began to speak boldly in the um, synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay, so I need to close the loop, if you will, on Paul's sacrifice of last week and how that laid the groundwork for what we see right now in this moment about Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus and the synagogue and Apollos coming in, okay? So this is a little bit of a side trail, but it's an important one to put the, the comma, the rest of the sins, and the period on last week. So rather than just saying, hey, occasionally God wants you to sacrifice some stuff, and who knows what's going to happen with it, okay? This is what kind of stuff is going to happen with it. When you are obedient and you lay things down for God, you sacrifice things that maybe you desire in your own flesh or your worldly ways, 
But you lay those down for the benefit of the kingdom, and God does amazing things with them. So Paul had just shared in this same synagogue. Think about this. He's coming through. He gets to Ephesus. It says he goes in the synagogue. He shares, and they say, hey, we like that message. Will you stay? And he goes, no, I need to, get, I, I need to, I need to fulfill this vow. So because of Paul's willingness and faithfulness to fulfill this vow, remember he had his hair cut, the, the, the Nazarite vow, because he says, no, but Lord willing, I'll come back, he has left them in this place of they've heard, they've heard something of the gospel message, but now there's nobody to fill this in, okay? And so he leaves a vacancy there, if you will. And, um, and so now you have this guy in Apollos who's come, but he doesn't have the full story. And so this is, this is sort of like a train wreck waiting to happen. So he could derail this thing seriously. Could he not? Like he's, he's, he's got the right disposition for it. He could come in and say, no, 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 no. Here's the, here's the real story. And then they listen to that. But here comes Apollos behind him. And if Paul had stayed, let me just say this. Just go with the story here for a second. If Paul had stayed, decided not to fulfill his vow, accepted the invitation to stay in Ephesus, and Apollos shows up, is Apollos going to have this moment where he's sharing in the synagogue that what he doesn't know gets exposed? Likely not. Uh, Paul was the respected guy. Paul was the guy who had stature and standing, the guy that they would invite to stand in the synagogue. Apollos is not that guy. So because Paul left. Because Paul left this vacancy, Apollos gets to step into this role, and we don't know that he's not ready for the spotlight until he actually steps in the spotlight. So just Paul's obedience in leaving Ephesus has laid some of the groundwork for this. But besides that, he also left Priscilla and Aquila there. If Priscilla and Aquila had continued travel, didn't go with him, something like that, um, then they're not there to hear Apollos' message and, and identify some deficiency in it, right? They, don't, they hear him present, they're like, ah, oh, that's not the whole story, right? They hear this. And so had Paul not laid that groundwork? So all these things are, are coming to fruition. Apollos, for all the potential, all the potential good he might do, has not arrived at the full truth. And so we have now a, a, a challenge. So he said somebody like Paul that hears somebody with like a, a deficient message or something that's contrary to what he would preach, he would have just like laid the smack down probably. But it's a different group. It's Priscilla and Aquila. They are the ones that interact with Apollos and they have to take a risk now. They have to take a spiritual risk. They have to risk offending this guy that probably has a little more clout than they do. And uh, so they've got to risk offending Apollos. They have to, to risk um, something of offending the Jews in the synagogue there by saying, no, 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 he doesn't have the story right. And potentially souring uh, Ephesus for the gospel. Like, so there's some risks here to addressing Apollos. And what they do is important. They do it in a, in a very spiritually beneficial way. It says, they took him aside. They didn't stand up in the synagogue and be like, whoa, 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 you've got it all wrong. They didn't embarrass his public ministry. They didn't ruin his witness. The, the, the wording here indicates something of a private nature. They, they privately met with him. They took him aside, and it says, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Um, people today, they, they, um, they fear correction because um, they think it's, it's criticism. It's something like, they are feeling like it's a personal affront to them. Because you, you, you encounter somebody and they say, hey, that's not quite all the right information. And, uh, and so they, they kind of speak against it. So I, I want to show you something. So this is, a, this is an acoustic guitar. And it can be, um, it can be tuned all on its own. Uh, it's designed in such a way that 
Give me just a second. Like every good musician, you have to wait. All right. I've tuned my guitar. A little out. Let me let me let me clean it up. I can um I can tune this guitar to itself eventually and I could play a song and you guys could feel like everything was going good with it and um, so a guitar is designed to be in tune with itself once you tune all the strings you can play the chords and everything's fine and I would say this is a C chord and you'd say that's Close enough, right? This is a C chord. And um, something like this problem with correction is because you think it's a criticism. I love this proverb because it says this. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. The idea that the actual word there is whoever loves correction, okay, loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof is stupid. Get to the point though, right? Get to the point. Will you come here? So here's the thing. If you're just playing in isolation, and uh, like Apollos, Apollos, he's, he's instructed in the word. He's got a story. He understands that the Messiah was coming. He knows up to the point of John's baptism. In isolation, he's fine. Like, okay, he could play his song, and uh, we're gonna play. We're gonna play a C chord. Okay, let's go. Ready? Two, three, four. A little something in F. Yeah, that's right. Okay. All right. So what's the problem here? The problem is that out of context, like if, if I'm alone, I'm isolated until I meet up against a standard, a standard, then I don't know that I'm out of tune. This is, this is what correction is. Correction is um, an objective standard and being brought to truth. Okay. So here's what it says here. The person that loves truth likes to be corrected. Why? Because you want to be doing what's true. You want to be doing what's right. The person that hates that, that that despises it, they're stupid. Why? Because they're content to be wrong. In fact, they enjoy that. They're like, okay with it. They'd rather be wrong than to be corrected. Okay. Now give me an E. (laughs) So because I know the keyboard is programmed, right? It's digital. That's, that's the standard. If I adjust myself to what's true, what's right, then I retune this will be a lot faster now <laughs> because uh, I'm not trying to tune it out of a... Right? So I bring myself in alignment with what's true. I shouldn't have lowered it all so much. All right. One more time. See? Right? Okay. Ta-da! Right? Okay. 
it's not a mystery that that was going to happen, okay? But here's the problem, right? So if you're in isolation, without context, you can hear the Word of God. You can see the Word of God, but until that's brought to bear in the context of something with a, a real objective standard, which only Priscilla and Aquila are bringing at the moment. They're, they're not Paul. They've only been instructed and with Paul in his ministry, and yet they're able to bring the standard, and they're able to, to use this moment to disciple to disciple Apollos. It's not because um, Priscilla and Aquila have this special apostle badge. They don't. Um, there's no New Testament that they're like, see, it's already written. It's God's word. Here it is. Right? They have to use this moment to appeal to the, the deficiency in Apollos' knowledge. And that's why it's correction and not criticism. That's why it's correction, not criticism. It's bringing his knowledge to fullness. It's, bringing, it's adding to what he already knows. And we have to infer some things here. They're able to connect the dots. He understands that the Christ has come, but guess what? He sacrificed because he was the sacrifice, and then he was resurrected. And now Apollos has the fullness of the gospel. And that's exactly what is set out here. But that never happens in isolation. If I showed you guys, if I said, here's a picture of a ruler, okay? You see how big an inch is? And you're like, yeah, it's like that big. It's, I see it right there. There's the standard, okay? And then I said, now draw, now draw an inch on your paper, okay? And then you, you tried to draw it. And I said, D- is it right? Did you get it right? And you, would, you wouldn't know until you took a measuring tape and you put it against your inch, right? In context, it, it, it shows whether or not you, are, you have the standard or not. Out of context, nobody knows. Are you, are you tracking with this story? Okay? The discipleship happens in context. It cannot happen out of context. That's the necessity of the church. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so here's the deal. We're not commended to um, spread and live by half-truths, half okay? Paul, Paul is bringing the fullness of the truth. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what he does. Apollos shows up, and he's deficient, but he can be, he's got potential. It's, it's natural, raw potential, but he's, he's not gifted with a, with a Holy Spirit gift yet, okay? And I, I say that pretty matter-of-factly. People have, have um, taken different positions on this, and I'll say, I'm gonna say, because of this unique place that we have where these two overlapping covenants are happening, um, Apollos, who'd been baptized, didn't need to be baptized again, but he's not quite there on the gospel. But once, his, once the fullness of his knowledge is brought together, then he's able to do all that he does, which makes him a fellow worker in the gospel. So uh, Priscilla and Aquila are not the standard. They have no special authority. And um, what they do is they bring the true truth to bear in a context that helps Apollos out. So look at what happens then. So it says, And when he wished to cross to um, Achia, the uh, brothers um, encouraged him, and they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Here's what's happened. Um, After he's been corrected, once his knowledge has come to fullness, it says the church there recognizes it, and they're going to write like this letter of commendation. This guy knows what he's doing. He's got it, right? So there's encouragement in that for him because in the context of the church, he's getting to use and exercise his gifts. But that only happened because Priscilla and Aquila took the risk. But that only happened because Paul was willing to leave them behind and because he vacated Ephesus for all of this to come to fullness. And do you see that God is laying the groundwork for all of this to happen? But it must happen within the context of the church uh, on the standard of God's word. Okay, so, so that's the, the fullness of the cycle. And then, they, so they write, they, they commend him. It says, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. This um, little phrase right there, through grace had believed, we all believe through grace. This is sort of betraying the fact that there's no New Testament. They got nothing to hold on to except for the raw testimony of 
um, the, the, about a Messiah Jesus who was crucified and, and lives again. And Apollos is the guy now that can bring all of the Old Testament connections there and really um, stand up for the truth of what's being um, proclaimed. And um, I need that last, there it is. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures now. So he opens up the Old Testament and he says, it's not just now there's a Messiah that's come. Let me show you that that was what was predicted, right? Exactly what Jesus had done for the disciples and for the apostles to make all of the necessary connections. And it says he powerfully refuted them, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. He's got the whole story now. He understands the way of God. He understands that Jesus is the Christ. And now he's able to proclaim it in a way that refutes all of the Jews. So the brothers there, and the church there, those that were believing by grace, are now encouraged. There's like a galvanizing thing that happened because of now Apollos exercising the gift that the Holy Spirit had given him. Initially, he shows up boiling in spirit, right? He's got enthusiasm, but that's not a spiritual gift. I, I have to, so, so I want to drill down here because this, this becomes important. You have a spiritual gift, okay? And whatever you're thinking right now about what your spiritual gift is, you're likely wrong. Why do I say that? Because everybody says it's something like playing the guitar or singing. That's not a spiritual gift. That's just a talent. That's a skill, okay? People that don't love God can do that really well, better than me, okay? Like, okay, so here's the thing. The spiritual gifts are given to the church for the good of the church. A spiritual gift is a spiritual opportunity met with... Um, uh, willingness and, and uh, the equipping, okay? So when opportunity meets need and somebody's able to give in that way, so it, it has to do with all of these things kind of culminating together and you get to participate in that, but the Holy Spirit is the one who gives these opportunities and he equips you with a gift. And so you say, well, if you don't think my gift is what I think it is, what is my gift, okay? Okay, I'm gonna get to this now. So, let me go back to Romans 12. So there's a couple places where it's specific, where Paul really gets into the spiritual gifts of the church and their purpose is, is never changing. It's always for the building up of the body to increase in faith, that we would increase in obedience, right? That's what discipleship is. It's increasing in obedience, not in hearing, okay? So this morning I want you to hear and apply. Hear and apply. You may not be called to be a teacher, okay? But... Hebrews 5 says, you're immature because by now you ought to be teachers. And the implication there is not that you need to be up here preaching. It's that by way of obedience, you should be an example to other people by now. He says, I want to address you about all these things. I have so many deeper things to tell you, but you're infantile. You're still on spiritual milk and you should be to meet. He says, you should be teachers by now. He doesn't mean that you ought to all be up here teaching. Paul says, in fact, that's not the call. Everybody, not many of you should presume to be teachers. What is implied in the you should be teachers is that you should be obedient enough to be able to disciple other people. That's what teaching is, okay? It's, it's by example. It's by life. Okay, so Romans 12. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, okay? Unity. And individually, we're members one of another, so we're, we're not pulling different directions. We don't have different goals, different objects that we're following, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, okay? So if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, 
The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. These are spiritual gifts. Now you might say, um, what are the actual gifts there? When God presents you with an opportunity to grow in something, here's what's happened for Apollos. He shows up, he, he's convinced he's got the whole story, okay? But God uses this moment, and by the Holy Spirit, Priscilla and Aquila are obedient, and they build him up, and he now has a gift that he can go and exhort, right? He can go and he can teach, and now he's going to use that spiritual gift in an opportunity also presented by the Holy Spirit. So what is, what is a spiritual gift? It is when the Holy Spirit presents you with an opportunity and a place that he's probably pressing on for you that you need to grow in obedience to. You think, the thing that I excel at and I'm really good that I don't have to try at, that's what the Holy Spirit is equipping me to do. Maybe, but maybe he's actually trying to grow you in something so that you will be a blessing to other people, okay? Because he says, look, in your generosity, maybe you don't see that you're a miserly person, okay? But every time you get the opportunity, like, you're, you're okay being generous with people. And that costs you something, but it doesn't hurt you, but you get to benefit other people. He says, if that's your gift, then give it willingly and do it with, with generosity. He says, um, to the one who contributes in generosity, that means not, not begrudgingly, okay? And the one who, who leads with zeal. So the point is this. I think the thing that we're most pressed in is where God wants to grow you so that you will bless other people with it. It's the thing that you are presented with the opportunity with, but you can't do it efficiently or well without his help, first of all, without the Holy Spirit's help, or without growing in obedience, okay? Few dozen off. Don't just hear me say this. I am not here to only teach so that you hear again that only heaps condemnation. It says you have a spiritual gift. And it's for the building up of the body. And if you're not engaging in that, it's likely, likely, no, I'm not going to equivocate on that. It's likely that it's the place that he's pressing and you're not being obedient to for it. That's why I keep coming back to that. He's pressing you for it and you're not growing in it. He wants to use it and he will use it as soon as you will be obedient and he'll grow you in it. And then you'll use that thing to bless other people. Apollos lack this knowledge, but as soon as he aligns that with the truth, then he's able to use that as a blessing for other people. Do you see how that cycle works? Okay? But it has to work together. Apollos has to receive that. And somebody, and Priscilla and Aquila had to give it. So it's both and. You may be in a season of needing and you may be in a season of giving. Whatever it is, you're always in a season of growth because that's what discipleship is. Obedience, growing in obedience. Okay? I'm going to end here on 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4 eight. above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So regardless of, of what other problems come between people in the church or, or something like that, we're still united in spirit. We still follow Christ, not, not me, not my version of the doctrine, whatever, right? We're still united together. So, so let love prevail. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve the good uh, serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. He, he's given you something different than he's given me, okay? But if you're not using that because you're defaulting to me, that's not my problem. 
There's some skeptical looks. You need to hear this. If you're not using your gift, you're disobeying what Scripture's telling you to do, not what I want you to do. You use your gifts for the good of the body. You should build one another up so that we all grow together into unity. Okay? If you want to scribble it down, 1 Corinthians 12 unpacks this much um, more deeply. But it goes into that, that, um, that familiar metaphor of the, the body being many different parts, you know, that the, the hand can't say to the mouth that I don't need you or whatever. Like, that's the point. We're, we're, we all need each other because we need each other so that we can grow together. And we can't have the mouth just dragging everybody into maturity. It won't work. We need some feet. We need some hands. You tracking? Okay, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this word. I pray that it would um, be used to build us up, that you would encourage us in ways where we might be um, flagging in zeal. Father, I just